right, welcome everybody to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where believe it or not, we are in that month, that very month that Justin Timberlake so gloriously ushers in each new year by talking about Peter Parker's aunt, May indeed, may we get some more draft talk, less front office talk, yes you may, because you asked so nicely. So tonight's episode, we're going to be talking about the NBA draft again. And actually, it's very fitting because the NBA lottery is only 14 days away. May 14th is when the lottery ping pong balls bounce and we see whether we stay at number 11 or actually somehow luck into jumping into the top four. So while we continue to wait and speculate on what's going on up top with Rob Palenka, Kurt Rambis, Linda Rambis, Jeannie Buss, and who out of Jawan Howard, Tyron Lue, and Monty Williams is going to inevitably take the Lakers' head coaching position. We are going to continue to turn a blind eye to that and talk about the NBA draft. And we have another great guest from the Red Team Scouting group with us tonight. His name's Alex West. He is the co-founder of the Red Team Scouting. And we're just going to go even deeper into this year's NBA draft and take it from a, a, a bit of a different vantage point than we did in part one of our introductory draft primer with Ustakio Raleigh of Red Team Scouting. So consider this part two, and Tommy's going to join me in a minute to give me some additional thoughts on the NBA draft. But before we get to all of that, as usual, please follow us on Twitter at Lakers Legacy Pod. Please also rate and review us on iTunes, uh, especially in this interim period where we're all just kind of waiting for news to drop. It would really help us out to know that you guys appreciate the content we're putting out. So please rate and review us on iTunes, five-star rating. That would that would really help us out a lot more than you know. And also patreon.com slash thelakerslegacypodcast. Our co-host Tommy is getting married in July. If you want to shoot him over some beer money, get him a drink, a congratulatory dollar. We'll make sure all those proceeds for the next two months go straight to Tommy's and his fiance's wedding fund in July, and we'll let him know all about that. So if you want to help us out in that way, that would be great as well. One last thing, as an accompaniment to this episode, I wanted to point people to, obviously, the last episode, episode 237, Constellation Constellation, with Ustakio Rally of Red Team Scouting, where we did an introduction to this draft. But I also wanted to point people to episode 234, in a bit of a draft pickle, because in that episode, Tommy and I break down very concretely why it's not a near certainty the way that some fans are making it out to be that the Lakers will actually trade their draft pick on draft night. Now, they may trade it down the road, but that's likely not going to happen till free agency shakes out and they understand where they are in the superstar max landscape. So they have very specific cap implications, and we break it all down in that episode, as well as just go into some of the intangible reasons why the Lakers would probably be best suited to take a wait-and-see approach and handle their lottery pick with a little more caution than usual. Namely, just the fact that this is probably going to be their last lottery pick in the next few years, and you don't want to treat that lightly. So this is why these draft episodes are so important, because... At some point or another, you're going to fall into the you're going to fall in love with some of these prospects and it's just better to educate yourself one way or another to see if we actually end up keeping that pick. So, definitely check out episode 234 in a bit of a draft pickle. With that said, I'm going to talk to Tommy about the draft right now and then my more in-depth conversation with Alex West as we get into some prospects that we didn't get to in part 1. 
but also try to attack the draft from a different angle and and fit different prospects into certain templates in an attempt to almost container store this draft uh, to the best of our ability. There's a lot of jumping around, but it is draft talk. Okay, Tommy, if the Lakers somehow jump into the top four and let's say they don't get the number one pick, which would be Zion, but get number two, number three, or number four, what non-Zion guy would you like to would you like the Lakers to take at that spot? I definitely need to watch a lot more of the film, but the two guys that are for sure at the top of my list are Ja Morant and um, what's that guard's name, Vanderbilt? Darius Garland. Darius Garland. Okay, so Darius Garland and Ja Morant are, for me, the two guys that stand out the most. And the main reason is that when you're picking number two, I don't care what your circumstances are or who's on your team or, you know, you have LeBron as 34 or whatever. I don't care. You have to shoot for, like, the home run. Who do you think is going to be an all-star? And besides Zion, I just think those two guys have the greatest potential to be all-stars. Morant, to me, is kind of like a mixture between De'Aaron Fox and Trey Young. So while his defense is not there and let's say his shot is still a work in progress, his passing ability and acumen is innate and impeccable. So that's what he has going for him outside of, obviously, his explosiveness. Darius Garland, on the other hand, is one of the smoothest guards you've ever seen come out of college since probably Damian Lillard, who I've compared him to in the past. But he is just so smooth, he can pull up on a dime, hit the three-pointer off off a dribble, hit the mid-range jump shot, and really just yo-yo that ball on a, like he dribbles the ball on a string pretty much. And he, it's, he's just a very, very smooth and silky sort of player. So just your thoughts on those two guards. Should the Lakers be able to nab one of them with the number two, number three, or number four pick? Yeah, honestly, not that different from you. I mean, Garland, I think the Dame, Damian Lillard thing is, is so on. I'm not even going to like try to think of anybody <laughs> else. Um, but for John Morant, he's just like such a, interesting player i i don't think he's quite it's i think he is like in the in the way that um that uh De'Aaron fox is explosive with his speed john morant is as explosive with his you know leaping ability it's just <laughs> like it's so crazy and it's just like explosion towards the rim you know i think darren fox is more of a crafty player and uh, you know on the westbrook end of this you know maybe uh or sorry, I meant to say um, uh, John Morant is more on the Westbrook end of the spectrum than De'Aaron mm-hmm. Fox is. But yeah, he's an amazing passer. I, I think the thing that impressed me most about John Morant is this fool is like a, not just a good passer, but uh, if he doesn't turn it over that much for the types of passes he makes, um, I think in his rookie one se- or uh, his second season. Um, he looked better than Trey Young as a passer. You know, Trey Young would average 10 assists a game or whatever at Oklahoma, but he was turning the ball over a lot and he was taking a lot of crazy, making a lot of crazy uh, passing attempts. John Morant mm-hmm. just, when that guy has the ball, you just feel like he's controlling the whole game. Um, and I, I think he could really work with, <laughs> it's not going to happen, so I don't want to get my hopes up. But man, I just have these like visions of him playing together with Lonzo and, it's just so it's it would be so nice yeah so i had initial concerns when i first started watching morant that this guy was going to be another chris dunn did you get flashes of that i was like oh this looks like dunn again we're saying the same things as chris dunn athletic wonky jump shot no i just 
Chris Dunn was just such a different player. Morant is so explosive and so much more gifted offensively. I will, yes, his jump shot is wonky, so I am concerned about that. But passing wise, it, it, that's the differentiating. Yeah, part. and also yeah. and also that. Cool. So, I want to ask you a general draft strategy question. I know it's tough to say, and we won't want to talk too much about what's going on up top, but. How do you think this organization, amidst all this turmoil and upheaval, how do you think the organization is operating with regards to the draft? Do you think because of all the mess that's happening up top that they almost have to work separately right now and just focus on the best prospect available and best fit for this team? Or should they also be taking into account tradeability given our situation? Like let's say we sign a a max free agent guy come summer, do you think they've taken into account ahead of time that we need to pick someone who we can trade down the road later? I just I think the two things go hand in hand. If you sure. pick who you think is the best player available, it's it's normally a very like fine spectrum. The Lakers took Kyle Kuzma number 27. It's not like Kyle Kuzma would have gone, you know, undrafted if we didn't take him at 27. Um, it, you know, there were reports that two picks later, the Spurs were interested. So generally, if you're picking the player that you think is the best, it's that that player is most likely going to be tradable. Um, but I think that scouting is a year round thing. And especially for this team, we've been out of the playoffs for a while Um and even before we were officially eliminated, you know, there was clearly a point where there was no chance. So before, even before Magic left, I'm sure him, Rob, the scouts, they all talked together about, you know, all of these issues. And so by this point, I have a feeling they have a very good idea of who they're most interested in. And the workouts that they do with the individuals will, you know, shed more light on that. But I just don't, you know, we have a scouting department. What's happening with the rest of the front office, I think, is somewhat irrelevant. Okay. Uh, so I guess this is a follow-up to that question, and maybe you already answered it, but do you think we can really glean too much from whoever they draft this year? Like, does it give us any breadcrumbs? If they draft, let's say, uh, Kobe White or Darius Garland, do you think that tips their hand a bit to what they're going to do in free agency? Like, if they get those high pick and roll dynamic scoring types of guards, does that mean the Lakers are out on Kemba for free agency? Or do you think they're still going to go after him? And, uh, and yeah, I guess, do you think it has a bearing on free agency or the Lakers really just pick the best player available and we'll figure out what has to happen down the road? I think it has no bearing. I think they're just going to pick best player available in on their board, you know, for whatever they define this year as being quote unquote best. Um, they're going to go with that guy. And if you end up end, you know, in a situation where maybe you, you have redundant talent now, you deal with that later. Um, you know, I was talking before about Brandon Clark. Uh, or Brandon Clark's name has been linked to the Lakers a lot. Brandon Clark, if we get Kawhi Leonard, could argue, is arguably kind of redundant. But you just take the best player available at your position that you're picking at and you worry about all the details later. Sure, and you'd hope that every organization would be doing that and that things are not so intrinsically tied, especially if, because that would mean you're putting all of your eggs in one basket or maybe just two. Uh, with that said, that'll end Draft Talk Corner with Tommy. 
Because he wasn't able to be a part of the interview with Alex West, thought I could ask him a few questions about the draft and get his opinions once again. Uh, but now I'm going to turn it over to my more in-depth look at the draft with Red Team Scouting's Alex West. Before we get to that, though, I'm going to turn it over to our sponsors, and then after that, we will catch you after the turn. My interview with Alex runs about an hour and 10 minutes, so there's a lot of content there to digest. So you can catch that interview shortly after the turn. All right, tonight we're pleased to round out our NBA draft series with the Red Team Scouting Group with the group's second co-founder of this entire venture, Alex West. Alex, how are you doing tonight? And I guess if we're to go off of Ustakio's middle name, you're actually the second Alex in a row we've had guests on this show from an NBA draft perspective. Uh, in that respect, do you have a unique, hard-to-pronounce middle name on the flip side to balance Ustakio Alex out? No, Alex is also my middle name. And I found that funny. I've known Ustakio for a long time now. And I found out that his middle name was Alex by listening to the podcast. So you've already <laughs> uh, created a new connection between us just by uh, just by asking him. And when he said that, I was like, that's really interesting because it's also my middle name. First name Christopher, though. So ah, okay, what are you going to do? You yeah. Double Alex. <laughs> that's awesome. As the second Alex on this show, I'm sure your analysis and insight tonight will be just as substantial and engaging as Ustakio. So we're glad to have you on to help us delve even deeper into aspects and prospects of this draft that we haven't yet touched on. Well, I'm um, glad to be here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. With the NBA draft season right around the corner and lottery day coming up on May 14th, how are you guys at Red Team Scouting revving up for the busiest season of this whole draft ordeal, I guess? Uh, it's been, it, it has been an ordeal, um, with something we've been working really hard on. We started, uh, even before we had founded Red Team Scouting, we were working on it in October and November, um, do, doing film. I've done a lot. I can't even count how many college games I've watched. Uh, I think I've watched Indiana and Duke five different times, um, <laughs> just as a frame of reference for like what we've watched. And I go back through and I, I watch this guy and then I watch this guy. Like I watched it for Zion. I watched it for Cam Reddish. I watched it for Barrett. I, I watched it for Tyus Jones. I watched it for Romeo Langford and I watched it for Juwan Morgan. So I've watched that game six times, just sort of <laughs> as a frame of reference for where we've been all around the world uh, during this draft season. So in summary, you've been busy and it's only going to get busier with the draft combine coming up, workouts, et cetera, et cetera. But it's an exciting time. And groups like you guys are what we latch on to, uh, especially as Lakers fans, where we weren't thinking about the lottery even two months ago. So we're kind of playing catch up at this point. So we're glad to have any additional guidance that we can. So tonight, I thought we could take a more categorical and focused look on the NBA draft by neatly organizing players into their proper templates and molds. So hopefully it'll be a little more digestible for our audience members who maybe have never heard of these players before. We'll probably still likely be jumping around and hitting on prospects throughout the episode, but I think the discussion should also have some additional guide rails to help crystallize things for our audience who uh, are just trying to wet their palate with this draft for the first time. So with that being said, Alex, let's just start off by asking you what your personal top five big board after Zion is, unless Zion's somehow not your number one. And then after that, if you had to characterize this draft in one or two words, how would you describe it? Uh, my personal board does start with Zion. Um, and I would, be, I would be very skeptical of anyone who's didn't, who didn't start their board with Zion at this point. Definitely. Uh, but after that, I'm a little bit different than what Estacchio had. Uh, I have uh, DeAndre Hunter as my number two guy. Oh, wow. Uh, 
I have John Morant as my number three guy. I have Brandon Clark as number four, and I have Grant Williams as number five. So that rounds out my top five. And to answer your question about what I think about this draft, I think it's kind of short on elite talent, um, kind of short on those on-ball guys who are going to carry elite offenses. Um, the possible exception is Ja Morant. He's obviously going to have to develop his uh, jump shooting ability to really unlock a lot of the keys to his game. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's a lot to like in the Ja Morant package. But other than Zion and Ja Morant, there's not a lot of that on-ball shot creation scoring that generally people sort of associate with high-level players. But mm-hmm. what I think this draft does have is a lot of quality NBA players, guys who can defend, guys who can shoot, uh, guys who aren't afraid to be point-of-attack defenders or free-safety defenders, uh, guys who are willing to push the ball in transition. You know, there's just a, a myriad of different skill sets that are necessary to make an NBA team. And we tend to focus a lot on on-ball scoring – um, but when you look at this draft, there's a lot of other things, and and I think that's highlighted pretty well by having a guy like DeAndre Hunter as your number two on the board. It's mm-hmm. not sexy. No one loves DeAndre Hunter. Um, but when I look at DeAndre Hunter, what I see is a very, very solid second option. And um, I want to build a team. Uh, you know, if you want to build a successful team, if you're a Memphis Grizzlies uh, and you have a Jaron Jackson Jr. or you're some of these other teams and you have a couple of pieces in place, maybe a, uh, a Devin Booker and a, and a DeAndre Ayton, you start to look at a character, I mean, a, a player, not a character, a, a player like DeAndre Hunter, and you see, hey, here's a guy who can spot up, he can defend four positions, he's a good um, high IQ guy. And, and so I think when you start to take the draft sort of out of the context of who is the upside guy, who is the next elite player, and start to look at it more and who's going to contribute on NBA level, I don't think this is as bad a draft, although mm-hmm. it is lacking in that top tier talent. Sure. So I guess what you're saying is essentially if you take it for what it is and make lemons out of, wait, make lemonade lem- lemonade out of lemons you make lemonade out of lemons then you yeah. could actually benefit from this draft essentially if you're looking at it from the right perspective with that said and we'll get into deandre hunter a little more later but do you think at this point what's your feeling on whether or not whether or not he could potentially drop to the lakers range at number 11 it wouldn't blow me away. Let's put it that way. I, I would be if it, if I were drafting. Yeah, there's no way he's dropping that low. Um, but if teams, it, it just sort of depends on how that all shakes out and what teams want to get out of this draft. There are guys below him on draft boards. Honestly, wouldn't surprise me to see Kevin Porter make a big jump with a strong workout. He's got those things that people love. He's got a he's got a tight handle. Uh, he's a shot maker. He's got the physical profile. Those are the guys that with a nice workout, with a nice combine five on five, um, tend to you know really make a jump. So it wouldn't blow me away if he were there at eleven. But I think probably I'd be a little shocked. Sure. With that said, and we'll touch upon Kevin Porter Jr. a little later as well. Before we start divvying up these categories and uh, placing players into different templates, I want to get your thoughts on the Lakers first and just your overarching thoughts on the Lakers' young core of Lonzo Ball, B.I., Kuzma, and Hart. And let's say all four are kept for now. What type of player at number 11 do you think would seamlessly fit and complement that group? And if not complement that group, is there a prospect at 11 who can render one of those four redundant and may even have better projectable upside that you consider drafting? Yeah, I think the Lakers are in need of two things. They need rim protection. Uh, they need kind of a bouncy vertical spacer. And then they need some horizontal spacing, guys who can knock down shots. And those two things are available in this class. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 
I know you guys talked extensively about Brandon Clark last week, and obviously that's a very good um, fit. It does render Kuzma a little bit redundant um, because Clark is not going to play a full-time five, and he's probably going to soak up those uh, playoff five minutes, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's probably the guy that renders him a little redundant. If you're looking at rim protection, there are two guys that possibly could fall into that range. I would be shocked if Jackson Hayes did, um, but he is he is the rim runner, the dunker spot guy uh, in this draft. And then Bol Bol is the other one, a little bit unique, kind of a shot maker, guy who can do a little bit more away from the rim, but he's more of a rim deterrent, I think, than, mm-hmm. a, than a, a rim protector. Uh, and then on the other side, when you look at spacing, I think there are guys – uh, who can who can sort of space the floor? The main one, you know, uh, Kobe White from North Carolina, who who can play, I think, uh, as well off the ball as he does on the ball. And so right. he and he and Lonzo would be a really interesting backcourt together. Um, and then Nikhil Alexander Walker, kind of a same situation, a combo guard out of Virginia Tech, uh, who does a lot of really good things, has some great vision. The thing about both of those guys that I think really fits in well is the Lakers got about 20% of their possessions um, in transition this year. They like to hit ahead. They like to move the ball. And if you put a lineup out there that involves Ingram, LeBron, Kuzma, Lonzo, and then a guy like Nikhil Alexander-Walker or Kobe White, uh, it just allows you to hit ahead. Everybody can dribble. Everybody can pass. Everybody can move ahead. And um, when you're getting about a fifth of your offense in transition, you may just want to continue to maximize that. Um, So I could see them going after a guard um, that early. Uh, But no matter what, they need to fill one of those two roles with the 11 uh, pick. And I think those are your guys that are probably going to be there. Now, when it comes to the Lakers, to answer your first question, so I guess I'm working backwards on these questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am a big Lonzo guy, uh, have always been a big Lonzo guy, and the reason why is just IQ. He's one of the highest IQ players uh, at UCLA. He was unbelievable um, and has continued to be unbelievable. I I think maybe the uh, defensive numbers that everybody likes to harp on and say, well, when Lonzo was playing, that might be a little bit overblown, uh, but I do really like the the defense that Lonzo brings to the table. Uh, Hart is kind of what he is. I think he's a very good player, but I don't expect a lot more out of him. I mean, he was injured towards the end of the year and there was a lot right. there, but uh, I think you're kind of getting what you're getting. And if you're satisfied with that, and I think in a, in a lot of cases, you probably should be for a guy who's like the 28th pick in the draft. That's pretty damn good. Sure. Um, but I think you probably aren't going to look for uh, Josh Hart to make the next leap. So maybe he's one of the redundant pieces you place. Uh, I kind of feel the same way about Kuzma. Uh, 14 and 7 is a really good stat line. That might be what you get out of Kuzma. I'd like to see that 33% kind of bump up. You know, I'd like to see him shoot in the 35, 36, 37% range from three. And I think that'd make him really valuable. But that's kind of what he is as a player. I'm not a big Brandon Ingram guy. He is a play a play two scorer um, who's not incredibly efficient and I'm not super sold on him as a part of, as either a a piece alongside LeBron uh, or as a guy that you would want to center a trade package around. I'm not super convinced he's that guy, Um, Mm -hmm. but I've talked to some league executives last week and, you know, it was just kind of going through it uh, and people do like him. Uh, This injury has been a bit of a concern, but he's a bigger trade asset than what I was willing to admit a week ago before. Uh, the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament. He he seemed to be uh, 
I guess he sort of roused people. Like, you know, that there was something there that they liked. But but for me, going towards the end of the season, pre-injury, I wasn't sure what that was as an asset. So uh, sure. maybe there's a little bit more development. He's still a very young guy. No, that's an interesting tidbit that you bring up because I was under the same impression that his trade value had pretty much plummeted. And maybe here's the thing. Maybe this is the differentiating point where I'm sure there's a ton of interest around the league with regards to Brandon Ingram, but I'm sure teams are still going to leverage the DVT injury against him. So the Lakers may have to still pony up more. For sure. Or other, other teams will probably downplay their interest for Brandon Ingram and continue to say, well, we're not taking him on unless you give us this as well. So we'll see how all that shakes out. But it's good to know that at the very least, most teams are probably considering it to be a one-off injury and that the interest is still there. With that said, at number 11... And given the context that we just laid out of the Lakers' young core, you've, you talked about some prospects that would fit in well with a Lonzo Ball uh, transition pace-heavy group like Kobe White and Nikhil Walker-Alexander, both players that can shoot but can also that are also pretty effective going downhill. Let's talk about potential landmines in this spot. Which prospects are you marking with a scarlet letter that you would deem dubious if the Lakers picked them at this spot? Uh, I think specifically for the Lakers, there's one. Uh, this is a player that I'm a little less sold on anyway, but I think for the Lakers in particular, uh, that guy is Romeo Langford from Indiana. Mm. Uh, Langford has a lot of tools that people love. Uh, he's not my favorite player in this draft because uh, I'm not entirely certain at what he what position he plays for one and what he does at an NBA level for two. Um, but I know a lot of people really like this guy. And the problem for me is – you're adding another, okay, he's lengthy. Uh, he's theoretically a good on-ball defender. He has the tools to do a lot of things, but he hasn't shown those things. Um, but the big problem is he was a 27% uh, three-point shooter. His mechanics are wonky. Uh, there's just not a lot of spacing there. And I think people have fallen in love with him a little bit too much based on what I've seen this year. Uh, as I watched, his motor can sort of dip. Uh, way down when he doesn't particularly feel like he's a part of the offense and doesn't feel engaged. So to me, that's the big landmine um, to watch out for. The other one possibly, and this one is, I'm going to add with a caveat, um, is Nasir Little. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what Nasir Little's problem was, was the way he was used at North Carolina. Uh, He was a player who's used to operate with the ball in his hands during his high school and AAU. He played that sort of point forward position where he operated on the ball a lot. Now, North Carolina, uh, they do a lot of cross screening. They do a lot of secondary break. Uh, The forwards don't handle the ball a lot. The ball ends up with them uh, to take shots. And it took a long time for them to kind of figure out, uh, Roy Williams and his staff, a long time to figure out what they had with Nasir Little. And they kind of worked it together towards the end of the year, but it didn't give us a ton of tape to show what he can do. Um, his handle was loose when he was in high school in AAU, and I really would have liked to have seen more of what he could do, and it just mm-hmm. wasn't there. So I'm not saying he's a landmine um, because I do think there's a lot of good basketball talent there that was just sort of misdirected during his time at North Carolina. But I, I would say he, you would have to be very, very certain he was going to fit in with what – you would have to, A, have a role in mind, and B, very cert, B be very certain that uh, Little was the guy that you needed to fill that role if you were going to pick him at 11, I think. 
Sure. And if anybody knows anything, I don't not sure the Lakers have the right infrastructure, if any, right now to take on <laughs> uh, prospects like like you just mentioned. So let's do a really quick fire sort of round and talk about more straightforward categories for prospects in the number 11 range. And I know this draft right now, there's a dearth at the point guard position. It's pretty much Ja Morant, Darius Garland, and then you're going into the combo guards range. But at number 11, who would you say would be the best point guard or combo guard at that spot? Point guard's tough. I mean, Garland probably doesn't fall that far. Um, he, the injury is a big concern. People have talked about it and how they might shy away from it. it. He had a very small sample size. In that small sample size, he was no doubt impressive. He could fall. I, I highly doubt it. I think you're looking more at a Nikhil Alexander-Walker in that range. Okay. Uh, He's a guy particularly that I like a lot. Um, he was the uh, secondary ball handler. Justin Robinson was the primary ball handler for Virginia Tech, but he got injured, uh, and they moved Walker to the primary ball handling, primary initiator role, and he really succeeded, and it was during conference play, uh, and I think that was part of his game that he was missing or hadn't been able to show on tape and being able to play both guard spots, being able to defend kind of one through three, be that switchable defender with some really nice tools. Um, he probably is the the combo guard who's going to be there. Now I disagree um, with my partner, Stachio. I disagree with him because he seemed to think that Kobe white might be there. I am not of that opinion. I think okay. white, I think white is probably gone inside the top seven. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. But uh, I think Walker, Alexander Walker's the guy who you're going to find in that combo guard spot as you get towards number 11. Sure. So NAW, who does he remind you of? I kind of have a shallow, this may be a shallow comp, but he can shoot the ball. You said he's also pretty good at initiating an offense. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Pat McCaw. Both have really long wingspans and are look super lanky. I think they both have 6'9", 6'10", wingspans. Could he play a Pat McCaw type role in the NBA? Is he potentially as good a shooter as Landry Shamit currently is? Uh, I know that's a tall order to heap onto anybody, but do you see shades of anybody in Nikhil Alexander Walker's game right now? That's tough. I mean, I'm not a, I, I'm not a big player comp guy. Um, I think maybe there's an interesting uh, comparison sort of to look at, and that's his cousin, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Mm, okay. um, they're not the same player by any stretch of the imagination, but they both have that sort of combo guard uh, utility that you like to see. And Shea Gilgis-Alexander has found a lot of success. He's not going to be uh, – Nikhil Alexander-Walker is not going to be the kind of off-ball mover that Landry Shaman is. Landry Shaman's super successful because he really – he under Greg Marshall at Wichita State, he really learned how to keep his weight in line with his body. And so he could reposition himself and he has very educated feet. That's probably not the kind of guy Alexander Walker is. Um, he just doesn't really have that technique down. He'd probably be a year or two away from that. And of course, Shamit was a junior um, and, and uh, Alexander mm -hmm. Walker's sophomore. So there is that extra year of basketball experience. But uh, I see him more as a as a on-ball guy in the right situation or a guy who does a lot of the handling, you know, sort of in that second unit. I really like him. Um, and I know he's a little bit lower on some other people's mocks, but that's a player that I really like in that range. And, and I could see him going a lot of different ways, just sort of how he fits in with whatever roster he lands on. Sure. So I guess along the same lines, who would you categorize at number 11 as the best 
playmaker? Would it be Nikhil or would it be someone at another position? I mean, probably, probably uh, Alexander Walker would be the way to go there. I mean, I know that's not uh, particularly interesting from a listening point of view, but he did show a lot of flashes. Justin Robinson is a really underrated point guard. We just watched him live this week at Portsmouth. Um, he is very, very underrated. I think he averaged 10 assists across the three games. Uh, and for Alexander Walker to sort of slide over and average six or seven assists while playing the point guard position, while being his team's primary option. I mean, you had Blackshear, you had Ahmad Hill, you had other guys who did things, but uh, he was definitely the focal point of Virginia Tech's offense. And to, to still be able to create for one uh, for other guys while being that focal point is something that gives him utility. Utility is the big selling point for him because mm-hmm. he can just fit in wherever you need him. Uh, but yeah, I'd probably still say he's the best playmaker in the bunch. Great. Uh, what about the best primary creator and scorer? I know you said this draft is sort of weak on those types of players, but is there someone at number 11 who, who you would deem the best primary creator? Depends on how you feel about Brandon Clark. Um, mm. Brandon, Brandon Clark can score. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. He, you know, when he was at San Jose State, he proved he could score. Uh, when he came to Gonzaga, he proved that he can score more. He played on a team that was one of the best in the country all year long. Um, and, you know, he was their leading scorer, I think, sort of against all odds. Um, not a lot of people expected that – oh, no, excuse me, Rui Hachimura was their leading scorer. He, Clark averaged 16.9. But um, I think that was sort of against all odds. When he was at San Jose, he was a good scorer. He improved his touch, everything um, there. He improved his shooting a little bit. Uh, he can score. I don't know how applicable it is to the NBA level. Um, but he has a lot of uh, of capability, and I think if you put him in the right role where he's uh, attacking vertically, which is something he did spectacularly throughout the season, or he's got a little bit of room to operate off a of warp, um, I think you're going to find a lot of utility with a guy like Brandon Clark. The other guy I really like in that position is Grant Williams, and Grant Williams averaged about 18 points a game uh, this season for Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee really relied on him to do a lot of things. He was sort of the focal point of when teams uh, game planned against volunteers. And I I think that his ability to shoot the three ball, his ability to create from that pinch post, um, be able to over the shoulder passer there. This is a very niche thing, uh, but I'll say it anyway. There there may not be a better over the shoulder passer than Grant Williams. He's kind Mm -hmm. of a guy who get in that pinch post area. He knows there's a guy on another the other elbow, he'll take one dribble, lure the defender and kick it out wide open three. Um, so he may fall into that, that uh, kind of playmaker role as well, although it's a little bit unconventional. Um, but those are the two guys that I think probably can do the most scoring um, because they have the utility to do other things that kind of put the defense on the back foot. Sure. Um, let's talk about Grant Williams for a second, because I know Ustaki was really high on him as well. I think he was like number three on his big board. So Grant Williams, he's only about, what, 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, height-wise? Yeah. He does have a long wingspan, 6'11". He's a very interesting player to me, and I'm going to caveat things by saying I'm I'm the comp guy. I just like to throw out comps, and for the purposes of <laughs> our audience, I okay. just think, especially for an audience that hasn't delved too deeply into drafts i think it's just more easily digestible to just throw shades of this sort of player you know um so with regards to grant williams i feel like he has a very old school post mid-range sort of feel to his game i know he also can shoot from three like you said but when i was watching him he sort of reminded me a little bit of lamarcus aldridge carl landry pj brown those types of guys in the mid-range 
But like you mentioned, he's also a really good passer. Could he sort of fill a Boris Diaw-ish sort of role with his perimeter skills as well as being such a such an adept playmaker? He's not quite the passer that Diaw is. Diaw had some really special vision for a forward. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he was sort of the linchpin of the ball movement of those Spurs offenses. But yeah, there's definitely uh, some utility there in terms of being a creator, being a guy who can play with his back to the basket, create for other people. He's really smart about how he uses his dribble to gain space and sort of lure defenders in because he's a bigger guy. He's big shoulders. You know, he weighs about 235. And he's not afraid to take kind of a power dribble and know that somebody He's going to, a second guy's going to collapse on him and he uses his awareness to kind of find, find guys all around the court. So I don't, I mean, in all honesty, that, that DL comp is not terrible um, because that's the kind of player he is just, he's not going to jump off out of the gym. He's not going to impress you with his end to end speed, uh, but he's always going to be in the right position and he's always going to be doing something productive. And to me, those linchpin guys, those glue guys are so important when you get into the 11 to 15 range that can be kind of, you know, historically not great instead mm-hmm. of shooting for upside guys, I tend to value. And I, I guess we, as a, as a group tend to value, um, we have this kind of say, and when we talk to each other is we, we just want to, that basketball, the money ball version of basketball is, is finding players that can play in the draft. And, you know, Moneyball yeah. was about getting on base and the A's, you know, sort of perfected this idea of however you got a guy on base. Well, getting on base in basketball is turning every pick into a productive NBA player because so many picks get wasted and it's very hard in that late lottery uh, into the twenties range to find guys. And I think for a lot of reasons is that we tend to swing into upside. Be like, Oh man, if, if uh, Gary Trent learns how to defend, he's going to be such a great player or, you know, something like that. And I love Gary Trent. That's not an indictment of his ability, but uh, that to me is like kind of what happens there. And Grant Williams is a very safe choice, uh, but because of the things he brings to the floor, uh, if he's there at 11, I mean, that's to me, that's a done deal. He would be, the guy out of this group. I mean, Clark, I think there's definitely an argument there, but um, I think Grant Williams would be my guy if both of them were there. I think he would be my number one guy at 11. Oh, interesting. Okay. And obviously, I think right now he's mocked even lower than 11, right? Yeah, a lot lower. Usually, he usually falls into the like the the 17 to 21 range. Okay. Yeah, he's just a guy that we really like a lot because he just does productive things on the basketball court. And that may not be sexy. It may not be the next big thing, but you need guys who do things productively on the basketball court. And I think Grant Williams has improved his skill set every single year. He continues to be, he might be one of the smartest players in college basketball. And I'm not just saying basketball IQ, like the guy plays 10 instruments and speaks four languages and (laughs) plays chess recreationally. Like this guy is brilliant. Um, And so his synthesis, his his ability to sort of synthesize new systems and um, play that intricate style of basketball, that uh, help defense kind of discussion where guys are talking all the time and and kind of figuring out defenses on the fly is something he's going to excel in. And you can't really uh, undervalue something like that. Sure. So I guess branching off of the Boris Diaw thing, would you maybe say that he's more Paul Millsapian? I'd imagine he's a better scorer than Boris Diaw, and because his passing is not as adept as a Diaw, maybe he can contribute in the same sorts of ways that a Paul Millsap can, where he can score, can operate in the mid post, but can also play make a little. And I guess defensively, how would you describe him? 
Millsap's probably that's probably a good way to keep your head. I mean, he's obviously not going to be as accomplished a defender as sure. Millsap, who is you know turned out to be a really good defender. Um, but Millsap's kind of that fourteen and seven guy, um, and I could see Grant Williams kind of falling in that, probably at a lower minute total to start off with. But uh, I like him as a really smart position defender. He's always going to be in the right spot. Uh, he's very good at talking. He was there. He was kind of their anchor, their lead communicator um, at Tennessee this year, which was a very good defense and. Translating that ability, I mean, as a rookie, you're not going to be the guy who's anchoring the defense and calling everything out. But just that IQ that he brings, um, being in the right spot all the time, being able to contest without fouling, being able to use your length effectively both on the perimeter and in the interior, uh, these things are will add up over time. And I, I think that that's probably – you're not going to get a ton of blocks. You're not going to get a ton of steals. Um, he averaged – solid numbers. He was about one steal a game, about 1.5 blocks a game, but they're not going to be the stock numbers that you're going to get somewhere else, but you're still going to get quality defense uh, in a, I guess, much less tangible or uh, categorical way than you get with a lot of other guys. Got it. With regards to the best primary creator slash scorer, what about someone who can create for himself off his own dribble? Would you say Kevin Porter Jr. for that category? Kevin Porter Jr., man. Kevin Porter Jr. is everything you want in a basketball player except something. And I, and that's the thing. is like that's You watch him and you just go – you'll watch Kevin Porter Jr. and you'll watch three or four games and, and you'll just find yourself kind of going, man, this guy's got everything. And then mm-hmm. for four plays, he'll just be gone. And then he'll come back in and he'll do something. He'll cross a guy over and you'll go, God, this guy has every tool in the book. He's got great length. He's got – phenomenal athleticism he's a good shot maker he played in the pac 12 uh which is a lot of zone defenses probably as you know as a west coast guy a lot of zone defense in the pac 12 super boring to watch and really actually bad uh for kevin porter's brand because he's kind of a shot maker he's kind of a a big shot taker and against zone defenses that is sort of deflated uh, I have said this all along that I, if if Kevin Porter Jr. had gone to Villanova, an East Coast school, I think he's probably top 10, even uh, pre-draft. But because we didn't get to see him against the more high-octane offenses that you get outside the Pac-12, um, we're a little bit depressed on what his value is. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of frustration um, when you watch him because he's he's almost there. He's almost there. And I think some team's going to talk themselves into being the team that kind of unlock it. I kind of feel like you're going to bang your head against the wall for three years with Kevin Porter Jr. He might break out. Um, I kind of think that if you have a chance to take a guy that you know what he does uh, in a Grant Williams, in a uh, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, I would tend to go that route unless I was incredibly confident that I knew exactly what was wrong with Kevin Porter and exactly how to fix it. And having that plan in place pre-draft is one thing, uh, but I think for most teams, the path is probably just sort of around Kevin Porter Jr. Um, in the in the late lottery, and then probably sort of teams start to steer towards him towards 18, 19. But uh, again, this is a guy, and I've said this, and I'll stand by this. If he has a strong workout, he's going to work his way into the mid lottery. Um, 
because of all the things that I said that he's just incredibly overwhelmingly impressive at times and then disappears at times. Yeah, he's he's physically empowering, especially with some of his putback dunks, watching him glide in transition and then all of a sudden throwing down a ferocious jam. It just he sort of pops out of the page, right? But I'm sure he, he also pops out of the page in all the wrong ways as well. And my comp for him, you tell me what you think of this, is uh, J.R. Smith. It could go one way good, it can go one way bad, but J.R. Smith just in a vacuum is just like such a physically impressive and tantalizing prospect. And LeBron James, I don't know if he's ready for J.R. Smith part two at a much younger <laughs> younger age, but uh, that sort of erratic player who can go one way or another, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've i kind of held this comp out. Like, I don't really want to say it. I'm going to because I get, you got to give the people what they want. They want Do these it. comps. He, he, I don't know, Jonathan. This is It's going to be hard for me to say. He reminds me of James Harden at Arizona State. Not, oh. James, not James Harden now. Not James Harden now. Sure, sure. He reminds me of James Harden at Arizona State. He's just – Harden just wasn't quite there. Um, and no one knew – I mean, no one knew during his time in Oklahoma City the trajectory his career was going to take. Nobody knew three yeah. years ago uh, the trajectory his career was going to take. These step-back threes, these floaters, all the things he's added to his game, that wasn't who he was coming out of college. He wasn't a guy who was outworking people in the offseason and doing all these things. He was kind of a guy who just glided by on his natural gifts. Now, that is a very dangerous comparison – because if somebody hears me say he reminds me of James Harden, they're going to think, oh, my God, you think this guy could be the best player in the league. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is James Harden was the full physical package. It did not look like he was super applied in his early years. And then as he aged, he became this tireless worker. I think you know the trade to Houston kind of kick-started something for him. He got in really good shape. Then, of course, the embarrassing loss to the Spurs, and he kind of kicked it up another notch. And um, there were a lot of paths in James Harden's career where he could have gone the wrong way, and he didn't. I don't know that I want to take a Kevin Porter who has the potential to go on that path if everything breaks the right way, if he hits 100% development, if, 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 if – yeah, you've got a great player there, but uh, it's a very risky path to take because of how many guys have started out with this, you know, amazingly high comp and ended up out of the league. I mean, the perfect example of this, um, a couple of years ago, this guy was James Young out of Kentucky and mm. the, Celt- the Celtics took James Young and it was like, man, he can be the next great on-ball scorer. He can do all these things. And here we are, I think four or five years later and James Young's not even in the league anymore. So. Right. That's kind of where you are. I mean, that Young was a guy who went 13. He was impressive in his uh, in his draft workout. Um, the Celtics kind of swooped in and, and scooped him up, and he just never did anything. And so you're playing a very polarizing game with a guy like Kevin Porter Jr., but – like I said, it's all there, but you better know what to do with it if you take it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I mentioned before, I don't think the Lakers have the proper infrastructure or support levels around LeBron James or the organization to take on that risk. As tantalizing as he is, uh, LeBron James' timeline just doesn't fit either. I don't think he's going to be patient with a guy like KPJ, who, like you said, you may just be banging your head on a wall. Okay, for real, we're going to go rapid fire. Best shooter at number 11. Uh, best, sh- <laughs> best shooter... This one's tough. Uh, I think Kobe White, if he's there, uh, Darius Garland, if he falls, and then you really start to look at guys who are further down the list, maybe a Tyler Hero, uh, Mm -hmm. maybe a um, 
maybe a guy like Ty Jerome, but those guys are falling much lower in mock drafts. Uh, so the shooter range is kind of sparse. It will depend on what happens before that. Um, which kind of shapes it. But if Kobe White's there, he's the guy. Um, he's a guy who fits in really well with what the Lakers want to do offensively anyway. Um, he would be a very – if I were making a big board, I don't know exactly who would how I would rank everything, but Kobe White would probably be the first guy in my kind of guard, combo guard area for the Lakers to target. Okay, great. Along the same lines, best 3 and D player at number 11. So that added defensive aspect to things. Super unpopular opinion. Um, it should be Cam Reddish. I don't think he'll fall that far. He mm. should. I, I don't know particularly any reason why, if you're a lottery team, you're going to look at Cam Reddish and go, okay, uh, this is the guy we want at number four. I mean, I, I've seen him I've seen him at number four on mock drafts, and it's having watched all the tape on him, it's unbelievable to me. I mean, maybe you believe that he will develop one day, but we talked about if, I mean, Cam Reddish is, might be the biggest if player in the draft, except for sure. maybe his, his teammate, RJ Baird at Duke. I mean, uh, so if Reddish is there at 11, I actually think that's really good value. I don't think he, if Atlanta ends up with both the Dallas and Atlanta pick, I don't think Reddish falls past them um, because that's kind of the guy they're looking for. And if they have a pick in that, like, you know, if they're like five and seven, I could see him getting taken by them. But there is a, there is a world where people sort of, if he doesn't work out well, if he doesn't really show those physical tools, that defensive capability in five on five when it comes to the combine, there's a world where he falls that low. Um, so he would probably be the guy in that world. Otherwise, it's tough. I mean, you've got you've got Alexander Walker. He's a little bit on the small side. You've got a guy like Nasir Little who you kind of need some other things to break right to have. Um, but that's probably what you're dealing with in sort of the three and D situation. Sure. And now I'm going to break my rule and talk about Cam Reddish. <laughs> and we're going to pump the brakes a little bit because I have a, in my outline here and in bold, I just put curious case of Cam Reddish. Now, with regards to Reddish and then comparing him to Kevin Porter Jr., which risk are you more willing to take in terms of the question marks surrounding the two? That's a tough question. I mean, there are, I think probably I would, oof, I don't know. They're both erratic, right? I mean, yeah, they're both erratic. They're both, they both float through games. They both disappear for stretches. Cam Reddish was the third best player in this draft class. And sometimes you would just forget he was there. Uh, and this is just goes back to the whole argument, which I have said many times, not on this podcast, but I've said many times, I wish Zion had gone to Clemson. I mean, I just wish he had because we would have a much better idea of who RJ Barrett and Cam Reddish were. Um, mm-hmm. We knew who Zion was uh, from almost from the word go, almost by mid-November, we knew who Zion was. Um, and that would have been true across the board, whether he was playing at Clemson or at Duke or at Southwest Tiptoe State. It wouldn't matter. He was the guy. Um, but for Cam Reddish, he kind of got depressed down into he wasn't even – now he's not the secondary guy. Now he's not even the tertiary guy a lot of times. Um, and he just kind of disappeared. I think – it depends on your infrastructure. Um, if you need, if you're willing to take a risk on one of those two guys, if those in some hypothetical world where those are my only two choices, um, I probably take Porter. I mm-hmm. think he's got. I think Reddish has more margin for error because of his size, um, but I think Kevin Porter has more functional athleticism, which to me is 
is pretty important. Um, he's got a lot of physical gifts. He can do a lot of things. Uh, and he's got a little bit more of an engaged mentality. Reddish mm-hmm. kind of is reserved a lot of times. So I will probably would take Kevin Porter Jr. But let me tell you, I'm not loving having to make that choice. No, absolutely. With regards to Reddish, you know, obviously the thing that jumps out to you the most is his really nice size. Six foot eight, seven foot one wingspan, flashes some defensive upside, an intriguing volume shooter. He has that sort of profile. He can't really handle the ball, not all that athletic, but in terms of three and D, because you mentioned him being part of this category, can he approximate eventually, if he gets things together, an Iman Shumpert or a less athletic, maybe more defensive-minded Gerald Green type role where his only utility will be just shoot a bunch of threes and also try and use your intensity on the other end to lock up the the best teams like wing or scorer. I mean, I don't know if he's ever going to be that kind of bulldog lock and trail primary defender guy. He just doesn't, you know, when you think about like that, you think about guys like Marcus Smart, Tony Allen, um, mm-hmm. guys who've gone through the league and they just have this certain mentality. They carry themselves. Pat Beverly's a perfect example of this. They just mm-hmm. play with a chip on their shoulder. Um, they're just mad about everything. And, and that just kind of powers them through. I'm not sure Reddish has that, which I know is not tangible in any sort of way. I mean, you got it, guys like Kawhi who can do it, who aren't fiery. Um, but Kawhi was always engaged. He was always, even when he came out of San Diego, he was always a, a guy who was locked into playing the game. He was play it the right way. He wasn't quite as emotional as a Marcus Smart or you know a Pat Beverly, that kind of thing. But with defenders being locked in, whether you're uh, on one end of the spectrum, explosive and emotional, or whether you're maybe a robot like Kawhi Leonard, being locked in mentally is the number one thing. And and I don't know that I see that in Reddish. It mentality to me is one of the things that's most difficult to develop. You kind of are who you are. You can change a lot of things about your game. You can improve your handle. You can become a better shooter somewhat. You can do a lot of things to improve your physical skills, but mentality kind of is what it is. There aren't sure. a lot There aren't a lot of guys who have sort of changed their stripes once they got into the league. Um, Cam Reddish may be that guy, uh, but at, at this point, I think his track record is pretty frightening for what he's done. Now, get him away from – Barrett and Zion put him in a role where he needs to do more where he needs to learn to succeed or fail on his own merit maybe he becomes that guy sure and I think right now given the Lakers context I mean maybe if they traded LeBron away and just went full rebuild again maybe taking a chance on guys like Reddish or Kevin Porter Jr. make a little more sense but with what they're trying to achieve right now where it's more supplementary ad guys on the margins to help support and amplify LeBron James and the core they have right now, you'd agree that these types of guys, one, they, they will, probably won't have the opportunity to show what they can do or even develop properly. And then two, they're probably just too erratic to rely on in even just two years, right? Yeah, yeah. The, you're not going to get, uh, with a Cam Reddish or a Kevin Porter Jr., you're not going to be at an... It's kind of like that same thing that happened when he was in Cleveland where they're Andrew Wiggins. Like, we didn't know Wiggins was not a good player then but Wiggins was kind of two years away from being any sort of contributor on the title team they flipped him around they picked up Kevin Love the rest is history the 2016 titles hanging in the rafters um that's kind of the same situation here when you're talking about a Cam Reddish or a Kevin Porter those guys may turn out to be the you know like when we do the redraft of this class in 10 years those may be the number two and three guys well one of them may be the number one guy I don't know but uh yeah for the next two or three seasons during the life of that first contract and during what is 
ostensibly the tail end of LeBron's prime. I don't think that's the way you want to go when there are other guys in this draft who can contribute immediately. If And then, of course, all that naturally is couched in if they even hold on to the 11th pick. Sure, absolutely. Okay, back into the categories and rapid fire. Who's the best floor spacing big, if you haven't already mentioned him? Would that be Grant Williams in the number 11 range? Bol Bol's probably the best floor spacing big. Uh, Williams is a good shooter. I think he's going to develop a lot more. He has this weird habit where he sticks his butt out when he shoots, and it kind of <laughs> like changes the way he shoots from distance versus mid-range. Once that gets fixed, yeah, it's entirely possible that he is going to be the best guy. Right now, I would say that's Bol Bol. Um who there you know a hundred other concerns about but uh he's probably the best space in big okay so let's land on bull bull really quick so he's what is he seven foot one with a seven foot eight wingspan I, I don't think i've ever heard of those measurements before outside of maybe gobert um obviously injury concerns surround him but from a spectrum and scale of thon maker to porzingis <laughs> who can this guy become <laughs> I don't even understand what the scale is. I mean, uh, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some legitimate concern about this injury. Uh, you know, as Estakio pointed out last week, his father played some pretty relatively healthy seasons, was a lot bigger. He was 7'7". Seven, seven. Um, but lower body injuries are a bit of a concern for me. I was concerned about um, Mohamed Bamba going into the draft last year. Uh, those concerns sort of played out in the first season he missed a lot of time with a stress fracture in his leg lower body injuries on big guys are no joke so before you even get into the idea of are we going to draft ball ball you need to be a hundred percent confident that this injury with his foot is a one-time thing and if that's the case and if you feel confident about him uh, i think there's a a really tremendous unique player um, who can do things that you don't see a ton in this league. We're starting to see it more and more often, guys who can space the floor uh, and defend the rim. I mean, it, it five years ago, that wasn't even a thing. It wasn't even a thing we thought about. But uh, Bowl is a unique player, um, and I think in a lot of ways that gives him tremendous uh, utility because people are really looking for these unicorns. Like you, you named Porzingis. He's a, he's a unicorn, and um, – you just don't find these guys under a rock. And, and I think he, he's exciting. Um, Estakio loves him. Uh, Estakio loves unique players. That's kind of his mm-hmm. favorite mold. He likes guys that uh, can't be replicated elsewhere. Um, so he likes Bol a lot more than I do. I have more concerns about the injury, uh, what it may mean for his future, what it may mean for his health. Um, and But like I said, like that's a good player and it's a unique player. So if that's what you think, and it kind of fills both roles for the Lakers, which is almost too perfect that he can, uh, he can protect the rim and he can space the floor. Um, So I guess it's too perfect. I don't know. I guess we'll see. (laughs) Will he be exposed on the perimeter guarding pick and roll though? Or can he just like extend his arms and it won't matter? No, hundred percent. He's going to get exposed. I mean, he, he's, He's got good feet, but he doesn't have great feet. He knows how to leverage his length well on the perimeter. So he's not going to get completely uh, completely exposed. But if the, if the trajectory is um, next season, the Lakers are in the thick of the Western Conference playoffs, yeah, you're going to probably lose Bol Bol somewhere along the line as you cut the rotation down just because he – like, you know, Stephen Adams. Stephen Adams is a great example of a, of a – of a big man who can defend in space. And 
Uh, he just got exposed during the Oklahoma City Portland series. And if that could happen to a guy like Steven Adams, who we were pretty sure could defend reasonably well in space, uh, it's pretty hard to see a bowl bowl hanging in there uh, and being able to defend guys like Dame Lillard, Russell Westbrook, um, even Steph Curry, who is just so incredibly crafty with the way he uses uh, screens and off-ball movement and stuff. Right. Um, so can you quell my concerns on this guy potentially being Thonmaker? Why is he not Thonmaker? Oh, I'm not here to quell your concerns on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Him playing nine games was horrible. Um, for me as a scout, for us as fans, for NBA teams, had we seen 28 or 30 games, I think we'd have a much better idea. It, this is just the God's honest truth. It's very, very hard to gauge based on what we saw. I mean, sure. you know, it's going to rely a lot on um, on workouts. It's going to be a, a rely a lot on five on five. But if you look back at the roster, I mean, at the teams that they played against, uh, you know, they were, uh, I guess, like six and three in the games he played with losses to Houston. So it turned out Houston was a good team. To Iowa, who was eh. Um, and then wins over Syracuse, Green Bay, Omaha, Eastern Washington, Portland State. Like, there's just not a ton of stuff here to dissect. Um, and I've watched – there are two guys that I've watched 100% of their college careers in this draft. I mean, I feel like I'm close on other guys, but I know for a fact I've watched every every minute of Bowl Bowl's career as well as Darius Garland. And with both of those guys, it's just a bummer. Um, from, a, from a fan perspective, it's just a bummer because it would have just been more fun with more good right. players. But from a, an evaluation perspective – uh, I, I am kind of scared. I'm kind of with you. Like, Bobo looks really good, but then again, so did Thon Maker. And uh, there have been a number of these guys who were supposed to be uh, the next Kevin Garnett or the next insert guy here, um, and they just ended up being fine or worse. Um, and so that's tough. I don't know. I would have to personally see a lot of Bobo to be even anywhere confident enough to draft him. Right. Um, and, a, you know, whatever he decides to do with his agent and with his medicals and all those kinds of things are really going to determine. He has a lot of control over where he's going to end up because of all that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, for me, the, the thing that I'm looking for from Bobo at the next level is how true is his shooting. And then he's a pretty good ball handler, but how much is that going to actually translate to the NBA? Yeah. I know Thon Maker was crossing people over up and, you know, when he was in high school as well. And then just durability, right? And how functionally athletic is he at the next level? And uh, can he gain muscle? Can he gain strength? So those are the things I'm looking for. I mean, yeah. those are all legitimate concerns. So uh, you, it just, like I said, it just depends on what you see as an evaluator when you talk to Bobo, when you watch him play those five on fives. Sure. And right now he's in the Lakers range, right? So it's not impossible that yeah yeah it's not impossible okay great okay so let's just talk about quickly about the two international prospects that Ustakio and I didn't touch upon um last episode but let's talk about Sekou Dumboya um I think he's from France right he is he's playing in Limoges right now um yeah so what do you think about Sekou is he the next Pascal Siakam or is he Al Farouk Aminu is he Luau Deng maybe what are your thoughts on him he is he's raw as hell I mean, he's very toolsy. Everybody knows what he does. Everybody, you know, okay, he's 6'9". He's got this impressive wingspan. Um, he's got every tool that you want possibly in the world. And we've talked about this. This is a, a recurring theme, but there's so much if 
around Seiko Domboya, if he becomes a better ball handler, if he becomes a better offensive decision maker, if he can learn to position himself better on defense, which has been one of his major, major flaws is that his defensive IQ is just not there. Um, if he can learn to play at a higher motor um, all the time. I mean, if all these things break right, this is a tremendous player, but I think some of them have to break right for him to be good. Uh, there There are things that unlock all the rest of what he does, and he either needs to be able to handle the ball and uh, attack closeouts, or he needs to be a knockdown shooter, and right now he's neither of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I mean, this is – I'm not I'm sort of unconventional on my draft board as you know has been revealed by the things that I say, but I don't have Dumboya anywhere near uh, the lottery. I, okay. I see, I understand the draw. I see what it's all about. Um, but to me, that's a, that's a guy who's two years away from being two years away. And um, for the Lakers, that's, you know, as you've touched on, not what they need. Um, but for a lot of teams, I just kind of think there's a, there's a trap there. Um, he, he and he may turn into a really good player, but if that's what you're taking at at seven, which is what I've seen him at on board, seven, eight, nine, man, that's really, really high for a guy with a lot of ifs. Sure. Okay. Well, we can turn the page quickly on that one. Let's go to Goga Batadze. Batadze. Goga yeah. Gogo Batadza, 6'11, plays in the ABA, 7'2 wingspan, which is great. On a spectrum from Ennis Cantor to Vucevic and Jokic, where does he fall for you? Uh, he's probably like a little bit more Steven Adams y to me. Oh, okay. He's really, really, sh- he's not anywhere near the vertical spacer of Steven Adams, but he's got nice touch around the rim. He can use both hands. He is absolutely a brick wall. The guy cannot be moved. He's probably the strongest guy in the draft. And I mean, if I really had to think about it, I would say he's the strongest guy in the draft, heads and shoulders, wow. um, except for maybe Zion. And, and Zion's this whole different kind of defensive and explosive strength. Uh, but Tadza does, doesn't get moved. He's tough as nails. I mean, he is going to be in the interior. He's going to be bruising. Um, he's going to do a lot of things. He's a great screener. I mean, he hammers people on screens. Mm. Um, and he plays that more traditional kind of post. He But – with the one caveat that he's a very good passer. He's got good vision. He's sort of a system mover built, brought up in those European ideals where if you can't get anything off one bounce, you move the ball and try to attack, uh, try to attack a warp. And he's very good about that. Very disciplined. He does. He's doesn't over dribble. Um, he's not afraid to move it. Uh, but the problem with him is he can't really defend in space. He has uh-huh. almost no lateral quickness. Um, mm-hmm. It's like he's beater in concrete when he's trying to move side to side. He's, there's just nothing there, which limits his switchability. Um, he, if you play in a drop coverage system, um, if you're dropping on pick and rolls, which the Lakers didn't do a ton of this year, they were they were a lot more of an over or a lock and trail team this year. Uh, if you go into more of a drop coverage system with him, I think you're going to find some success. He is very strong. He can challenge at the rim. He knows how to use his verticality, um, but he's kind of – He's kind of slow. He's kind of slow-footed, and then he always tries to block a lot of shots, mm-hmm. um, which leaves him out of position as a defensive rebounder. Um, and I don't love guys who try to block shots and can't um, because it usually leaves that offensive glass cleanup crew to just come in and kind of hammer one down on you. So there are concerns with Gogo Batadza. I'm a little bit more confident in his translatability. I'm not sure what his role is at that level, but um, – he, he's a he's a solid player to me he's kind of uh 
like cut from that Tristan Thompson mold of like just strong physical guy who's going to go in, he's going to knock some heads, he's going to get on the offensive glass, and then he's going to do a little bit of everything else for you as well. He's got a little bit of range. So uh, interesting player, uh, interesting big man. Probably would be really fun to see him run screen and rolls of LeBron, um, mm-hmm. but but I think there probably are better options for bigs in that range. Yeah, I was going to say, with regards to the two European bigs that LeBron has famously played with, uh, Zajunas Ilgauskas and then also Timofey Mozgov for about a year, is he sort of like a melding of both players potentially? How translatable is his shot? Do you think he has a chance to become a three-point shooter? He has a chance to become a passable three-point shooter, yeah. Okay. I, I- I don't think he's going to be a floor space and big man. He's not going to be Brooke Lopez. He's not going to be anything like that. But I think that he will be a passable shooter from range because, first of all, guys aren't really going to respect him all that much. Uh, so I think he's going to get a lot of open looks. And he's pretty good. He's pretty smart about operating in that trail position sort of as teams push ahead. He'll kind of fall into the slot off to the side and, and find his shot. And um, he's he's a heady player. Um, and I think playing with a, a LeBron-led team – um, LeBron kind of loves those heady guys, particularly big men. Uh, I think they would get along really well. I'm not super sure that he's the best guy to fit there, but um, I, I do think if if that's the guy, uh, Lakers fans will be outraged at first and then pre- pleasantly surprised <laughs> afterward. That makes sense. Okay, some quick hits. With regards to, let's say the Lakers somehow jump into the top four, let's talk non-Zion. With regards to wings, who do you prefer out of – Jarrett Culver and RJ Barrett. For me, RJ Barrett, I kind of, it's taken me a while to even understand <laughs> like yeah. who he is as a prospect. He's kind of clunky. He reminds me of Julius Randle at the wing position. Not very refined, isn't too fluid. He has good vision and is a pretty good playmaker and passer, but with regards to just how he gets his points, it's sort of dirty and muck it up, and he just kind of bullies into people and gets his points that way. But yeah, what are your thoughts on RJ Barrett? And at this point, you'd probably go Jarrett Culver over him, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not an RJ Barrett guy. I mean, Estakio, we've, we've talked about this extensively. We're not, neither of us are very high on RJ Barrett. Um, coming to the point where if I'm a lot of teams, I'm not super sure that he's on my board, on my big board, when I start to make that short list of guys that I want. Some teams are going to value him. Some teams are going to want him. Um, but I think for like a lot of teams, that's he is a ball stopper to the nth degree. He is mm-hmm. a play two guy. Um, he His passing skills are there. His passing mentality is pretty frightening. Um, he doesn't like to pass the ball a lot. Uh, he showed the ability to pass, but a lot more when the games weren't close or when the games were uh, – you know, like it was not the last few minutes of the game. When it got the last few minutes, he gets locked in. He looks to score. He looks to get to his spot in this weird little mid-range kind of thing that he does. Um, he's a player you'd have to be super sure that you know what to do with before you take him. Uh, and I'm kind of afraid he's going to end up on Cleveland and make them absolutely the most unwatchable team in the league, <laughs> which is like they were close to it already. But uh, I think if he ends up there with him and Sex- Sexton, at least they figured out he was a two guard, um, but that would be a pretty unwatchable team. So yeah, without a doubt, I, I like Culver better. Okay. So more of this or that Jarrett Culver or Darius Garland. Depends on what you need. Um, Garland probably makes more sense for the Lakers. Okay. But Culver in a lot of situations is going to make more sense for teams. Uh, but in this specific instance, Garland with his spacing, his ability to operate as a pick and roll, he and LeBron 
uh, would be a fun pick and roll if LeBron were the screener, um, just because Garland's kind of a maestro in that pick and roll situation. Uh, they would be fun to watch as as they operated downhill. What about DeAndre Hunter or Brandon Clark if the Lakers were somehow faced with those two options? Hunter's the guy um, for me there, and floor spacing is the number one thing. I mean, I really love Clark is the best weak side rim protector in the class. It's not close. He is explosive. I mean, if you go back and watch, particularly there's one block he gets in the Tennessee game where you, I just had to stop and just rewind it three or four times. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunter just does a little bit of everything. Um, he can defend he can defend like 1.5 through 4.5. I mean, he defended some seven footers last year. They played Louisville. He defended Anas Mahmoud, who's a seven footer. Um, he's defended some guards. We saw what he did against Jarrett Culver. We saw what he did um, all through the tournament, being able to defend different guys, that versatility plus his uh, shot making ability uh, as a corner three shooter, which is what LeBron likes. Um, uh, he would be the guy that I would tab out of those two. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. What about Jackson Hayes or Brandon Clark? If let's say Jackson Hayes somehow falls to the number 11th range and the Lakers can pick between the two. That's, that's tough. Um, Clark, probably the more impactful player early on. Mm -hmm. Um, So probably would lean towards him. uh, But that's tough because if you're dead set on operating, and I don't like to draft best player available ever, but if you're dead set on operating with Ingram, Kuzma, LeBron, um, Lonzo, then Jackson Hayes just kind of like fills right in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's a little bit easier to just put in and go like, okay, these are the five guys who finish games and just roll on from there. Um, in other situations, you know, if, if some guys end up move it, if some guys end up moved or whatever, um, Clark, probably is I think the more impactful guy he's going to be able to come in and do what he does and I think he gives some vertical spacing not quite as much as Hayes so that's a tough question Um, I I think it just of course depends on whatever the new GM whatever the new coaching staff however they want to go about it but um, Hayes makes more sense positionally but Clark's probably the more impactful player so I didn't answer that but nope that makes sense John Morant or Darius Garland for the Lakers uh, yeah, let's say for the Lakers, if they're in the top four and they have a choice between the two. Probably Garland. Um, Morant yeah. just doesn't really give you any spacing right now. He will be able to probably. His jump shot is the only thing between him and a really good player, um, and I think he'll develop that. Uh, I'm friends with the strength and conditioning coach um, at um, – at Murray State, and you know, they talked about. I talked to him sort of. He he actually went to high school with me, and, and we talked mm-hmm. to him about you know like just what he was going through in terms of shooting. And he said he that the staff has done a really good job, but they haven't worked with him on what we would consider to be an NBA level. Um, and you know, they have done a tremendous job of molding a player who. Um, you know, by any sort of measurement was not a top 10 guy coming into his freshman year. And then as a sophomore year, you know, he just exploded onto the scene. Um, But I think there are levels for him to go up beyond what uh, he has done right now. Sure. I don't know if it'll ever come to this, but let's say Darius Garland falls because of his injury concerns and just the small sample size. But Darius Garland or Brandon Clark for the Lakers? That's tough. Uh, That's tough. (laughs) I think it just depends on what you believe Lonzo ball is. Um, Mm -hmm. If if you believe that Lonzo is a player that you want to build around and he's Lonzo is 
a guy who has to have the ball in his hands because he can't shoot. Um, so if you're dead set on, on him being a part of your future and, you know, I think that there are a lot of reasons to be set on that. He's a tremendously high IQ guy. He's a great defender. He brings a lot to the table. He kind of reminds me of, of Rajon Rondo during those Celtics runs. It's like he brings a lot to the table. He takes a lot off the table, uh, mm-hmm. but you're usually willing to live with it because of the things he does so well. And that's kind of not, not a, like a skills way, but in a, in a sort of a, a mentality way of just like, you have to take the good with the bad with Lonzo ball. If you're willing to do that, um, I think Clark's probably the guy. If you're less sure about what Lonzo can do, if you move him off the ball because you want to put Garland on the ball, then you start to get into like, the replaceability. So I think it just comes down to who do you feel is more replaceable um, or I guess it is less vital to the team success. Do you feel like it's Kuzma because that's who Clark's going to bump out? Or do you feel like it's ball because that's who Garland probably bumps out? I'm not sure how that would shake out with like the one and the two, but mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of the, that, that question. And I think probably I would rather have uh, Clark replace Kuzma than Garland replace ball. Yeah, all good things to consider. And then on top of that, also depends on whether the Lakers have an inkling during draft time at who they could potentially get at free agency. Because if you, if you get a Kemba Walker, then Brandon Clark probably makes more sense, right? But there's no way to know that early on. Um, with that said, to close the show, um, Alex, I have some fun categories that I wanted to ask you about. And this this one, for sure, you can just give me one-word answers. So I thought it would be fun to just group players and and. and reference players in previous drafts who sort of filled a role after the fact. Uh, so we'll, we'll have a little bit of fun with this. Um, at the number 11 spot, who wins the Georges Papagiannis Thon Maker Super Reach of the Year Award at number 11 if the Lakers drafted this player? Rui Hachimura. <laughs> yes, okay, I agree with you there. <laughs> okay, um, who wins the Malcolm Brogdon or Derek White underappreciated, under-the-radar, maybe slightly older prospect of the year award who becomes a regular future NBA starter at number 11? It would be uh, Grant Williams or or Brandon Clark, but if we're going to say a guy that we haven't talked about, Matisse Thibel out of Washington would be a, a, a guy who definitely is going to find his way into NBA minutes. And he's more of a 3 and D small forward, power forward, right? Yeah, and probably more of a 20 guy, but you could see him. I mean, if if somebody really loved him, he could jump in there and he's going to be a good player. Cool. I feel like we've already talked about this guy, but who wins the Marquis Chris Award for right idea, wrong guy, all potential, but no IQ slash skill prospect at number 11? Or maybe no skill is the wrong word, but all potential, but may not have it all together at the end of the day. Uh, could be Kevin Porter. I would probably lean towards Romeo Langford as that guy. Uh, Porter, okay. I think, is probably going to fall a little bit later into the 20s. But Langford is, I think, a guy that somebody's going to snatch up at the end of the lottery and be dissatisfied with. But we'll see. On the other end of things, who wins the Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, Clay Thompson, slippy wing who could fall to this range and then eventually just break out because everything clicks and he finds himself in the right environment award at number 11? To me, that's Alexander Walker. Um, I mean, mm. it could it could be DeAndre Hunter as well, um, but I don't think Hunter's going to fall that far. I think Alexander Walker is – some team's going to be really, really happy with the player they get, it, particularly after a couple years of development. Cool. Okay, my last award. This actually pertains more relevantly to the Lakers because there's a tendency to think that they'll probably veer more towards the side of getting a, a more day-one-ready sort of player. So – who wins the Kelly Olynyk Award at the number 11 spot for almost too safe, but you end up sorry prospect? 
who you gravitate towards because of their floor, but end up missing out on a Giannis type who has more undeniable ceiling? Well, I'm going to answer this question and it's going to be the reverse of like the way you ask it because I read it and I, I know exactly what you're going for here, but I, I'm going to have to say that th- this is where I could see Nasir Little or Romeo Langford going. And it's not mm-hmm. because of their floor, uh, but I think in regards to safety, I think with a first-year GM uh, coming in, with a first-year coach, with a lot of movement, they're going to aim for a guy that sort of falls in the consensus um, instead of pr- branching out and taking a guy like a Grant Williams. Um, I don't think you would see Grant Williams go that early to a first-year GM um, unless they had that like that Danny Ainge level, Sam Presti level of se- job security, wherein they might. But uh, I would say that probably you're going to see a very conventional pick, which may end up not being the correct pick. And I know that's mm-hmm. the opposite of sort of what you ask in terms of like safety, um, because I actually like a lot of the safe guys in this range, the, mm-hmm. the guys who I know what they're going to do, Brandon Clark being a good example of that. It's like you might leave a Kevin Porter on the board who turns into a really great player, but I'm I'm almost positive that that Brandon Clark is a is a positive contributor on NBA level. So I like a lot of the quote unquote safer guys. I think where the trap that the Lakers might fall into is drafting a guy who's too conventional, who's too in that that eleven, you know, 10, 11, 12 range on big boards around the country um, and may miss out on a player who can be more of a contributor early on. No, definitely. I like the angle you took with that, and it makes sense from that end. Um, Okay, Alex, thank you so much for hopping on. I know we went a little bit longer than I expected, but it's always really interesting to talk about these prospects more in-depth and um, just view the the different ways that they could potentially fit on a team, not fit on a team, and especially as it pertains to uh, such an interesting team like the Lakers. Yeah. so, Alex, thanks again for hopping on. We really appreciate your time. Um, what do you guys have cooking over at the Red Team Scouting? And, um, yeah, if you want to just plug your handles, uh, the Red Team Scouting handle, as well as your uh, personal one, please go ahead and do so. Uh, we're working on – we're about to finish up our extensive profiles. We wrote some really in-depth profiles. We wrote about 20 of them. So for the next 20 to 25 or as many as we can get out through draft day, we're writing a little bit more of an abbreviated model. And it's basically going to focus on those questions, the contextual questions about what's going to make a guy get minutes, what's going to keep him from getting minutes, how hard are those problems to solve. Um, and I think that contextualizing is really important, and it's something we often don't take into account enough of, particularly when you hear that – best player available moniker sort of handed mm-hmm. around. So uh, that's the perspective we're taking over the next, you know, six weeks probably leading up to the draft. We hope to put out quite a few more profiles. Um, this has been a learning year for us. We created a model out of nothing. We've refined that model. We've refined it again. Um, we've refined our scouting techniques and done a little bit of everything. So check us out at redteamscouting.com. You can follow us on Twitter at redteamscouting. You can follow me at AlexWestNBA. Um, and I'm more than happy if you are listening and you have draft questions, shoot them over to me. Um, I'll be more than happy to, to, to give you my opinion, which is you know, maybe not worth much to you, but I'll be more than happy to interact with you. No, I've really appreciated your guys's insight into these prospects this year. And like you said, just how deeply you guys have contextualized things. And I especially like your episode, I think it was two episodes ago, where you talked about playoff teams and how they went about constructing their teams through the draft. Uh, so for any listeners right now, definitely check that episode out. I forget what number. I don't know if you remember the number. I, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I produced them and I have no idea what number. That's fair. On. Yeah. <laughs> so it's in there. It's a play. It's playoff teams and we talk about them. So if you find our podcast, you can find it. 
I mean, in summary, check out Red Team Scouting. And Alex, again, thank you for hopping on. Maybe we'll have you come on again post-draft once the, the dust has settled and the Lakers have made their pick and we can talk more about how uh jared culver is a less athletic iguodala i don't know i love comps this is my <laughs> i hate them so i'm a comp junkie alex yeah, not do me. not don't shame me in front of no i'm, my not, listeners. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding i'm just kidding i know you're not I know. i'm not a, i'm just not a comp guys just i, I yeah. don't do it and when you ask me i'm like oh god i didn't prep enough on this no 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 that's fair i think you're that's the smarter way to go. I just, uh, low, lowest common denominator for me right here. Uh, with, that, <laughs> with that said, thank you again for hopping on and uh, we'll catch you sometime soon. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely.